Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Psalm 102 is where we're going to be today. If you don't have that, most of the passages will be on the, uh, the screen today. And just to give you a, a little background, if it's maybe your first time in this series, we're doing a series called Soundtrack, where we're looking at some of the key psalms in the Bible. And again, these psalms, sometimes when we open up our Bibles and read them, we just read them like we would any other literature or any other book. But these are literally song lyrics. They are songs that people would sing. Uh, just like what we just did, the, these were put to, to music, they were ballads, they were love songs, they were songs about who God was, songs about questions people had about God, about questions that were going on in their life. It was literally a soundtrack of their day, and Psalms, when you think about it, is basically a collection of the greatest hits of the, the early church, of those who began to interact with God, and it's a great way to to learn and emotionally even connect with with people and how uh, they felt about God as they were growing in their faith. And we started with this idea when we looked at Psalms 1 as this, uh, it was kind of the, the title track, and we said everything in our life, uh, we're either playing melodies of righteousness or melodies of wickedness. It's one of the two. You can't play both sides of the record at the same time. You're playing one of those, and that's what comes out in your life. And uh, by choices we make, by how we handle circumstances, and we've looked over the past few weeks how those play out. If we play the melodies of righteousness, it says that our lives would prosper. If we we play the melodies of wickedness, it says that we will perish. And then we talked a couple of weeks ago, the melodies of, of wickedness cause us to embrace vice in our life and lead us into a trap where we're controlled by sin. But the melodies of righteousness set us free as we pursue virtue in our life and we experience freedom from sin and freedom to do what God challenges us to do. And then last week, Chase shared a great uh, thoughts on, on his own personal soundtrack and how things were playing out in his life and how easy it is for the melodies of wickedness to sneak in to our life. And all of a sudden we find ourselves playing them and we didn't even intend to. And how do we look at those and how do we avoid those and things like that. And so we've been on this journey. And this week, we now jump into Psalms 102. And I'd love to tell you that Psalms 102 is an encouraging, uplifting psalm. But it is not. It is very much like today. It's kind of this dreary, just down psalm is where it starts. Just want to give you a heads up. This doesn't start out cheerful and happy. It doesn't bring hope, courage, and strength when we first read it. The first few verses aren't going to make you feel better about your circumstances in life, your failures or your shortcomings or your bad situation or your desperate needs. As a matter of fact, it's, we're basically going to have like a little pity party in here. That's what Psalms 102 does to start with. No, no one is for sure who wrote Psalm 102. And it's so dark, maybe they didn't want to put their name on it. Maybe they were like, I, I don't, wow, I wrote that? Wow, you know, it's like, so they, they don't know for sure who did it. Some of the best guesses are they say that maybe David wrote it uh, after the rebellion and death of his son Absalom. His own son rebelled against him to try to become king of Israel and was doing a pretty good job in leading many people into the rebellion. And But eventually David's army caught Absalom and his general killed David's son. And some would say that this was, David wrote this after that. Some would say that this was written by a prophet or just some, some person in Israel, a, a songwriter who, uh, after the time of exile, 
when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and conquered Israel and took them into captivity. They were away from home. Their hopes and dreams were destroyed. And they said maybe it was written during that time. The truth is we don't really need to know who wrote this. But we do need to understand that this person was in more than just a funk or a mild lamaze. They were someone that was suffering from deep, deep depression. Depression. Their soul was hurting. So before we read this passage, I want to talk about this word depression for a minute. Because there's a lot of things that come to our mind and a lot of thoughts that come to our mind when we hear that word. Each of us in here at some point in our life has probably dealt with feeling depressed, feeling blue, feeling hopeless at times. And then there are also those of us who struggle with ongoing depression that can be caused by emotional, psychological, and physical issues. And today as we look at this idea of spiritual depression, I want to tell you what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be helping us identify in our lives negative thought patterns that we continue to think on that build on each other and create cycles of hopelessness in our life. And how do we begin to take intentional intervention to break those cycles? So when I talk about spiritual depression today, it is this idea that these are thought patterns that we can just start to think over and over again, negative thought patterns that basically spiral out of control until we feel hopeless. And that's what we're talking about today. But I want you to know that is not the only cause of depression. There are many physical causes that can only be treated by medical expertise and and even proper medication. But I do believe that there's an epidemic of spiritual depression that we must begin to acknowledge, understand, and work with God and others to break this damaging and dangerous way of living. Now that we're all excited and happy to talk about depression, let's, uh, let's jump into this. So if you got your Bibles, Psalm 102, verses 1 and 2, and it says this. Psalmist says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Whoever this writer is, he's having a distressing day, right? He's not having a good day. And, you know, it makes us ask a question. It makes me begin to think, let me ask you this question. What's been the most difficult thing you faced this week? It's been the most difficult thing you face maybe this month, this year, right? It doesn't take long when we ask ourselves this question to come up with a difficult list of circumstances and situations. And when we do that, I don't know if you're like me, but I start thinking and regret starts creeping into my mind. What could I have done different? What would I, should I have done this? Should I have responded this way instead of that way. If I would have done this beforehand, then maybe I wouldn't be facing this circumstance. If I would have treated this person different, if I would have said this different, whatever it is, we start letting regret and fear creep into our lives. Because many of us believe the lie that if we live our lives doing only right things and making right choices, then only right will come into our life. Only good will come into our life. If we do good, They'll only get good in return. It's karma, right? Karma's not true. I wish it was. I wish all you could say is, look, all I got to do is put as much good out there, and then only good flows back my way. That sounds great, but you and I, every person in here knows that's not true. We even have little simple sayings like this, right? An apple a day keeps the doctor away. 
That's not true. I mean, we, we'd say, like, as long as you eat healthy, you'll never get sick, right? No. Exercise every day and your body will be perfect. No. We, there's no secret formula to avoiding difficult, depressing, and distressing situations. Just isn't true. The truth is this. Difficulties will come our way almost every day. The choice is not whether we will face difficulties, but instead it is how we will face these difficulties. The secret to overcoming depression is learning not to avoid affliction, but learning how to walk through affliction. And that's what we're going to see here today. So let's begin by asking a simple question that I think if I was this guy having a distressing day, says, please, Lord, come to me in my day of distress. I need an answer. I love how he says this. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Like, I need an answer today, God. Like, I need you to break through today. Not like, this isn't something I want to pray about for years. I need your help today. Which would make me ask a question, where does our affliction come from? Where does our pain come from? It's an important question to ask, not just from an academic standpoint, so we can say, look, this came from this or that. But it's also, we need to have the ability to recognize affliction and properly understand its source so that we can begin to understand that it's not all our fault. It's not all somebody else's fault. It's not all God's fault. Because we love, when affliction comes, you know what we love to do? We love to place blame. We love to find a place to blame. And we have a lot of sources. And let's look at Psalm 102, 3 through 5, and see how this guy begins to deal with identifying and how he's feeling. So he's having a distressing day, it says in verse 2. And verse 3 tells us how he feels. He says, for my days... They pass away like smoke, for my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. This guy's not having a good day. I mean, he is not having a good day. But as I read this, you know, his words, his imagery, it resonates with my soul. I've had days like this. I've had moments just days that seem to go up into smoke, meaningless days, days when I hurt to the very core of who I am and I feel like my bones are burning, day when my heart feels trampled on like withered grass, days I don't even want to eat or drink or get out of the apartment. I've had days when I just want to scream and make loud groanings just to yell and shout and hope that somebody hears. We've had days like this. Remember the day we lost Katie's dad to a tragic accident? It was a day like that. A day we just wanted to scream. A day we hurt to our core. I remember a day in high school when one of my best friends growing up committed suicide. And I just hurt. My body ached. I remember being in my home not wanting to get out and not wanting to do anything. I remember the day I lost a job and I felt like my life was over. And I felt hopeless. And I, I remember driving in my car, screaming, groaning on the way home. The day that I heard a good friend of ours lost a child. My heart just broke. It felt trampled on like withered grass. I I don't know what was causing this writer's affliction, but I do know this. Whatever it was, it was deeply personal and painful. And you and I can relate to that. And if he's anything like you and like me, the first thing he probably did was try to figure out who's to blame for this, like what I just said. So let's try to answer that question. 
that we brought up. Who is the source of our affliction and suffering? Where does it come from? Who's to blame? Because here's what happens. Once we can figure out blame, then we can lash out at that person. So if, if somebody else is to blame, I can lash out at them. I can repay evil with evil. If I'm to blame, I can lash out at myself. I can, I can get so down on myself, I can beat myself up. If God's to blame, I can lash out at God. I want to respond. I want to express this pain somehow. So let's look at different sources that we typically ascribe blame to. And the first one is God. We, we often like to blame God. God, why did you do this? Why didn't you stop this? Why did you allow this to happen? And I want you to hear something. God is the author of everything good. When we look at scripture, he is the author of everything good. And that still doesn't answer the question of, then why didn't God stop bad things from happening to me? And while this is a whole sermon in itself that we could probably spend weeks talking about, the, the simplest answer that we can come to is this. He does. That God does stop bad things from happening to us. It's called grace. He does intervene in our life. But the truth is, many times we continue to reject his ways and try to make our own paths. We try to make our own way. Here's how often I often find myself praying this way. I'll say, God, will you make my path safe instead of taking me along your safe path? You see, I'd rather God take the obstacles out of my way, that the way that I'm choosing to walk and live my life, than actually be obedient and set aside and submit to God and say, I will walk in your safe paths. Walk as God intended. But I want you to hear, God is not about bringing you pain. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God we worship. God is not a God who just wants to pour pain in your life to teach you lessons. When we study scripture, that's not what we find. The second thing that we like to, to blame all the time is, is sin or Satan or the devil. The devil made me do it or there's just sin. And while our sin can certainly bring consequences in our life, it is not the cause of all afflictions that we face. You get a cancer diagnosis, it's not because you sinned. Tragic death of a loved one isn't a punishment for your sin. Anyone who tells you that is not honoring and not teaching the word of God. While sin is the root of evil that can grow in our life, every evil that happens to us is not a result of our personal sin. And we often think that way, and we often beat ourselves up, and we think, if I would have just done better, if I would have not done this, then this wouldn't have happened. How many times do we bargain with God in that sense, right? God, I'll, I'll, I'll go to church more. I'll start doing this. I'll start reading my Bible if you take this away. Because we think doing good, we get back in this karma routine. And that's what we think. If I, I did so much bad, so now God is punishing me. That's not the way the Bible teaches either. We think other people sometimes are the cause of our affliction as well. Everybody's out to get me. And while pain can certainly come from our lives because of other people's choices, they alone are not the source of our pain. The truth is most people hurt other people because they have first been hurt. You ever heard the saying, hurt people, hurt people? And that's the truth. Oftentimes we hurt others because we're just passing along the pain in our life. And so where does that pain come from? I want to try to give you a quick answer to that from a biblical perspective. A biblical perspective on suffering tells us this, that affliction is the byproduct of the falling, fallen world system that we live in. A world that at, at its beginning rejected God and embraced sin moves in opposition to God's perfect design. It's working against God. Our, 
our world is. And as our world does that, as, as systems move out of alignment, it causes pain, it causes friction, it causes destruction. And sometimes we just get caught in that. Sin, sickness, just as a result of our broken world. And that's hard to embrace sometimes, and it's hard to understand because we want to blame somebody else. But sometimes pain is just there. Pain and affliction come our way. And while we suffer in the midst of affliction, I want you to hear this. It is God's redemption that is working within this system to bring back hope and restoration. When God saw the broken system, he didn't just step away and say, all right, guys, enjoy what you created. Just, you know, you broke it, you fix it. God's not what God said. Instead, God intervened into the system. And we, we learn in the Gospels that means he literally came in the form of a man, Jesus, to live among us, to provide salvation from this pain. Maybe not escape from it, but salvation through it. And I want you to see this. God didn't erase death. Instead, he defeated it. God doesn't erase illness. Instead, he provides spiritual healing and wholeness in the midst of it. God didn't erase war and suffering. Instead, he provides the peace to endure. God brought redemption into the system, which brings us to a choice. It's the same choice that this writer has in Psalms and you and I have every day. What do we do with our pain and affliction? Because our pain and affliction bring us to a crossroads. We've already said you're going to face it every day. It's going to come into your life. And when it does, you have a choice to make. Literally a left turn or a right turn. You can move in one direction or the other direction. And where you turn determines where you end up. And we see, as we're going to look deeper into the psalm, the writer initially takes a, a wrong turn. Because the two destinations are either depression are dependence upon God. And his first turn is toward depression. And so what I want us to look at today is what is along that road? What are some road signs along that pathway to depression that we can begin to identify when we begin walking this same pathway? So let's look at some of these road signs or the signs of depression in our life. And it starts in verse 6, and it says this. He continues, he says, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. The first step that we take toward depression is withdrawal. We begin to withdraw. The, the desert owl says here, he gives two examples, but basically he's saying the desert owl is in places that he shouldn't be. He, he's, he's supposed to, a desert owl, where is, he, where, is he, where is he supposed to be? The desert, right? He's a desert owl. But you find the desert out sometimes in the wilderness, sometimes in places that he doesn't belong. He would go to even waste places, to areas outside of his, his home. And this is often what we do. He's saying, I feel like I'm somebody that's out of place. We withdraw. And I don't mean that we run and hide and make ourselves scarce. He says, just like this desert owl, he begins to extract himself from other people and other things makes himself not at home. And here's the way I, I best describe this. When something begins to go wrong in our life, instead of admitting it and saying it, and saying, hey, my life is like a desert right now, nothing good is going on right now, 
we try to hide our pain and affliction. We, we don't let anyone see it or its effects on us. We start saying things, you know, I'm all right, I'm fine. Somebody says, is there anything I can do to help? And we quickly say, no, 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 I'm good. We start to believe that no one will understand and no one cares. And we withdraw and try to look like we belong, even though when we don't, we don't. And here's the thing. We, we withdraw not by getting away from people, but we draw by hiding our pain. The worst thing you can do when you have affliction is to hide it. It's to stuff it in. But that's what the, he says, that's what I feel like. I feel like somebody who's out of place. Everybody else fits in this world, and I'm out of place. And begins to withdraw. And what happens with this is we lose perspective. We have a loss of perspective. We don't begin to see things the right way. We see things from a different perspective because we have withdrawn in that. But that's not just a bad step there. That's a difficult step. But then it says, verse 7, it says, I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. The second step that you and I take is loneliness. Once we have withdrawn and we keep everyone at arm's length from our pain and our problems, we begin to feel isolated from others. Look at what the guy says. He says, I feel like a sparrow sitting on the rooftop. You know, everybody in the house is warm, enjoying each other's company, connected. The lights are on. They're around the fire. But I'm just like a bird on the rooftop. I'm separated. I'm, I'm not with them. When loneliness sets in, relationships begin to wither. Loneliness often causes us to, the, to do the exact opposite of what we should do. Instead of drawing closer to people, we start closing ourselves off. We don't go out. We don't return phone calls. We don't start new relationships. We find ways to be by ourselves, except that we aren't alone. We're simply alone with our pain. And that's not a good place to be. Alone with your pain. Like a sparrow on the rooftop is a horrible place to be. And the outcome is this, is we have a loss of support. Nobody's there to help us. We've isolated, we've withdrawn, and we feel like nothing. We're all by ourselves. You ever had that moment? You ever had that moment in your life when you just feel like, nobody, nobody knows what I'm going through. I'm all alone in this world. That's what this writer was saying, and you and I felt that before. We felt like we don't have any support. And the temptation there is to take the next step where really this is a turning point. This is where many of us can get to this point. And what we should do as we're part of a church family, as we're part of a, a real family, is to reach out and say, I need help. But instead, we continue to withdraw, and here's what happens next. Verse 8. It says, then all the day my enemies taunt me, and they deride me, and they use my name for a curse. Now he's getting a little aggravated, right? Like we see aggravation. My my enemies are out to get me. People that I thought were my friends, they're not my friends anymore. People use my name as a curse. They're like, you know, you don't want to be like Patrick. You don't want to end up like Patrick. And like my name becomes an adjective versus a name. And this is this type of aggravation when we feel alone and we, even by our own choices, we quickly moved to where we feel abandoned. And about this is the minute that we have this tricky change that we've got to make sure we don't move toward aggravation. When we're dealing with something difficult, we withdraw. We don't want to bother other people with our problems. I'll just keep it to myself, we say. And then we isolate. Because we don't want to 
we want to hide our pain any longer. We, we feel alone and without support, and now we look back at everyone, and we grow aggravated with them and with God for abandoning us, even though they haven't. Even though we're the one that stepped out of support, we look back and we get aggravated. And this is a dangerous stage because it drives away, drives you away from people, God, hope, and into deeper despair. When we start identifying more with our pain than with people, we're in a dangerous place. When our pain becomes our defining characteristic, you're no longer you, but you are sorrow. I am pain. I am grief. You are a widow. You are a divorcee. You are a childless mother. You are this person with this disease. When you allow that to define who you are, you embrace your pain. You begin to, your pain has become your persona instead of who you are. And when we become aggravated in this, we become, we have a loss of identity. We stop being me. We stop being God's chosen one, God's loved one. And we start being simply our pain. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 9 continues on and he says, For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. The next step we take is physical deprivation. It begins to show up in our life physically. Once our pain becomes our persona, we lose respect for ourselves, and we do what this writer does. We start eating food that brings death, drinking his own sorrow. This guy at this point is a physical wreck, a physical wreck. He's ex- this is exactly why it's so easy to slide into some kind of dependence upon food, alcohol, drug, or some kind of harmful habit when we're dealing with pain because we get isolated. We feel like we don't have support. We've lost our identity, and we're just trying to find something to fill the void. But the truth is we don't drink to forget. We don't eat to soothe our pain. We don't get high to relax. We don't binge shop to satisfy a desire. We actually do these things when we're in pain because we really don't care anymore about how it impacts my life. I'm done. So what? So what if I get drunk every night? So what if I do this? Does it even matter anymore? I'm not even a person anymore. I'm just my pain. And he's eating ashes like bread and is mingling his tears with his drink. And we fall in this trap of actually bringing more harm and more affliction onto ourselves, even physically, when we do this. And we literally start causing ourselves more heartache and more pain to try and destroy the heartache and pain that we're dealing with. And the outcome is this. We have a loss of respect for who we are. I don't even respect myself anymore when we get to this point. But again, the pathway doesn't stop there. Verse 10 says this, Then because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and you have thrown me down. He's talking to God right here. And what we see next is spiritual deprivation, where he starts to cut himself off spiritually. It's pretty easy to see a step from physical deprivation to spiritual deprivation. Once we've lost respect for our own spiritual selves, we tell ourselves that God must feel the same way about us too. The writer says it because of your indignation and your anger. We, he, we really begin to believe that God doesn't care. He's angry at us. He has indignation towards us. He believes that God's out to get him and that he has no value to God any longer. Where he says it there is this. God has basically thrown him down, discarded him like a worthless piece of trash. You've taken me up and you've thrown me down. While this is so far from the truth, it's not difficult to see how the writer came to this conclusion. He has cut off every source of truth in his life. And he now feels cut off from the ultimate source of truth, which is God's love 
and God's grace. He has slowly, when he took that left turn, he has been walking away from God's answer to his pain and his affliction. But he just keeps walking deeper and deeper and deeper. I want you to hear this. While God never turns his back on us, we can turn our backs on his love. We can willfully choose to say, God, I don't believe that you love me. God, I don't think that you're there for me. And we can cause ourselves to believe that. We can feel abandoned even when he is carrying us through the most difficult days of our life. And when this happens, we have a loss of worth. We don't feel like we're worthy. We feel valueless. And we take the final step, which is verse 11. And the writer says this, My days are like evening shadow. I wither away like grass. The final step on the journey is complete depression, spiritual depression. This isn't just feeling bad or overwhelmed. It isn't having a bad day. It isn't, you know, man, it's just been a rough season. It is complete and utter hopelessness. Look at what the writer says about his life. He compares it to an evening shadow. What's an evening shadow? It doesn't last very long. It's the last part of it. Shadow doesn't go on at night. It only happens with a sunset. Barely get these shadows and then they're gone. He's saying basically there's not much left of my life. I'm withering away like the grass. He's lost all idea that he can ever experience true pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope again. And this, again, now we see why the writer wrote in verse 3, 4, and 5 when he said, my bones burn, my heart's struck down, I'm just groaning loudly. We see how he got there. And when we get to this point, we feel like there's no reason to continue. Death seems a better option than living a pain-filled, isolated, abandoned, worthless life. We have reached the end of our journey. And this road only has a one destination, complete and utter hopelessness. We are a shadow of who we used to be. We feel empty, frail, lifeless, like a bag of bones. And my flesh simply clings to. It's not even worth breathing again. And the music stops. This music that we've talked about the last few weeks that give us life, that keep us moving, this is when the music stops. And the outcome is that we lose hope. We have a loss of hope. Losing hope is one of the most dangerous things that can ever happen in somebody's life. If you don't have hope, you don't have a reason to live. Now, while we can look at this writer's descent into depression, I think it's often more meaningful we can hear in these kind of struggles from someone who we know. Many times I've asked some of you to share parts of your story with our church family of struggles, times that you faced that. Today I want to share with you part of my story, a time that I walked through this. And this is a story I don't often share, and I have rarely shared it in its entirety. Twenty-five years ago, I woke up one morning, and I literally couldn't speak above a raspy whisper. For years prior to this, I'd used my voice as one of my defining Factors. I was a radio DJ. I used to be a sideline reporter for football games. I gave speeches, and when I was in high school, I went state competitions for speaking. I knew I had a good voice, and speaking was my life. I even wanted to be president of the United States and inspire people with my words. I mean, I had it planned. That's what I wanted to be. And while I had little concern for losing my voice for just one day, I quickly became concerned when my voice didn't return the next day, the next week, or the next month. If anything, my voice seemed to be getting worse. 
my job, my life, my dreams were all tied to my voice. Dozens of doctor visits later and still no answers. Speech therapy did very little but to give me the ability to maybe speak for two or three minutes before my voice would lose its strength again. It literally took almost a year before I could get to a point that I could have regular conversations. It took me almost five years to get back to a point that I could do what I do today. And even, I would say, 10 years to get to the point where I am today at all. And what did I do during all this time? I'd love to say that, you know, I reached out and supported friends, that people came, you know, I just invited people into my struggles. But I withdrew. I acted like I was fine. Yeah, I let people know. I wasn't happy about it. But I, I found ways around my problem. I told everybody it was fine. I, I didn't let anyone in. Over the years, as I withdrew, I, I grew lonely. I thought no one can relate to me. So I worked harder than everyone else to prove my value was more than my words and more than my voice. And everybody believed it, except for me. Still thought I was lacking. Still thought there was something missing, that God had taken something from me. I grew aggravated with God. People would tell me that I need to pray more. If you just pray more, God will, God will fix that. I had people come to me, if you'll just get rid of the sin in your life, God will fix that. I had people come and say, oh, I know what you're going through. I lost my voice once after screaming at a football game. And I'm like, you know, I, just, I, just, I, would grow ag- I grew literally aggravated at people. And I began to let myself even go physically because I thought everyone thought of me as the guy with the voice problems. That was my identity. I cut God off. I felt like he had abandoned me and discarded me. I was still working for churches, but to be honest, many times I had to struggle even believing what I was teaching, that God loved us, God was there for you, and God could come through for you. Years passed. I would tell people, including my family, that I was fine with my voice. But the truth is it was still the one thing that I always prayed for God to fix more than anything else. And when he didn't, the cycle of depression would hit me harder and harder and harder. I began to actually enjoy isolation. It was easier being on the road for my job than being at home. It was easier eating by myself with someone than trying to speak over a crowd and struggling with my voice. Even when I hang out with friends, I would feel alone, abandoned, and I would often not say what I would want to say because I didn't want to struggle with speaking. And I began to feel like nobody, nobody there knew me and knew what I was going through. I felt like I lost faith in God, lost faith in myself, lost friends, lost hope. I remember one night literally lying awake in bed late at night, and I was sobbing for what seemed like no reason. I don't know that I could even told you at that point that it was because of the depression I was feeling over something that happened 20 years ago. Katie heard me, and she woke up and asked me what was wrong, and I simply told her, I feel alone. The next week, I remember driving back from a speaking engagement where my voice had failed me again. And I was on a dark load road, literally and spiritually, that night. And it crossed into my mind, just keep driving. Just go. No one will miss you. If you're gone, it's, you know, nobody care. Then the bigger lie came in, right? Don't just keep driving. Just drive off the road. End it all. In the pain, leave everybody in peace. And I literally remember crying out to God that night, saying, God, where are you? God, fix this. Fix me. And the only answer I ever got back from God was this. I'm here. I'm here. 
And I was like, I don't want you to be here. I want you to fix this. I want you to fix me. And all he kept saying was, I'm here. And I kept saying, but Lord, no, but Lord, but Lord, but Lord. And I I heard myself that night, and a truth just came to me from God. I have no doubt that it was from God. Where I realized this. I'd gotten to the point in my life where I was wanting freedom from my affliction more than I was wanting a relationship with God. I cared more about him answering my prayer than I actually cared about him. And I lost hope because I had turned my back slowly and steadily for 25 years. Just small steps, cycle after cycle of depression. And that night, driving on that dark road, I still can remember where I was. I remember God just over and over again saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I want to tell you, this wasn't a quick fix. But it was the beginning of a change in perspective in my life. It was a reminder that those simple words can change everything. No matter how deep, no matter how dark the cycle has gotten in your life, God is there. You may feel like you're in the pit. You may feel like you're at the very bottom, completely abandoned, but there's God's there. God was there before you. God is there with you. But I want you to hear this today, too. If you're struggling with depression, you see yourself on this pathway, God is there. But I want you to hear this, too. We're here. We are here. This church is here for you. And I'm going to be very honest. I don't, have the, I don't have the answer to your pain. I don't have the answer to your problems. I can't, in one conversation, solve whatever it is your affliction is. But what we can do is walk through it together. You do not have to walk it alone. And although this is where we're stopping this week, this is not where this psalm stops. Because in verse 12, the psalmist repeats some words that I heard myself say so often. Verse 12 starts with, But you, O Lord. He remembered. He remembered that God was with him even in this darkest moment. And I want to encourage you, be here next week as we talk about how to move out of this toward dependence. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a minute.